let's jump right into uh, uh, Romans 8. Got a lot to cover. Um, so let me begin by just saying that last week, last week we sort of talked at the beginning about how the Christian life is very much an up and down, uh, victory and defeat kind of existence. A lot of times you make a, a couple steps forward and then you feel like you've made a step back and, and sort of an up and down kind of existence. Even though we have victory over sin, of course, even though we know we have power over sin, as we talked a lot about last week, uh, we still struggle against sin. We still struggle this side of heaven with the effects of fallenness in, in, in a broken world. And, and not just out there, but, but here, <laughs> in here, and in our own families, in our own marriages. The struggle against sin is real. Romans 7.15, like we talked about last week, says, for I do not understand. It sort of typifies this struggle against sin. Paul says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. You ever feel torn like that in in your Christian life? I know the good, I want to do the good, and yet I know the bad, and I want to do the bad. All at the same time, we experience that victory and defeat. So, so last week we set up sort of the, the theological grounding, uh, sort of the doctrinal reasons why we experience victory over the power of sin by being identified with Christ. That's the first blank in your outline on the study notes there and in the sermon notes. The first blank there today is to experience victory over the power of sin. And this is kind of what we talked about that first half of the statement last week, to experience victory over the power of sin. And this is this week, we must be identified with Christ. We talked some about that identification last week. We're going to give it a more of a, a, a clear picture about what that, what that idea of identification with Christ is. To experience vis- victory over sin and the power of sin, we must be identified with Christ. And while the text does not say those words explicitly, it's kind of a, a theological idea that, that takes a lot of the way that Paul talks about this together. We'll talk more about that in a little bit here. That's the basic concept. And it's the process of this identification with Christ that makes verse 1 possible. So that Paul can say this in Romans 8.1. He says this, follow along. There is therefore, there is therefore now... Not then, not future, but now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's sort of the the identity idea. We'll pick up on that identity thing in a few minutes, so put that in your back pocket. We'll come back. So verses 1 to 4, as as a quick recap, uh, is where Paul describes this freedom from condemnation, he says there in verse 1. Freedom from condemnation. That is that I have freedom from God's just wrath against my sin. That, that freedom from God's just wrath against my sin was accomplished by Christ's perfect and sinless life and his death on the cross for me. So, so that's the gospel. If you're wondering, what's the gospel? Where is the gospel? This is the gospel. Look at verses 3 and 4. Uh, awesome verses that encapsulate these ideas. It says this, verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do by sending his own son, circle that, we'll come back to it later, by sending his own son, circle that word son because we'll come back, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, notice it's in the likeness of sinful flesh, not as sinful flesh, but in our likeness. That's him identifying with us, that's Christ identifying with us first. 
In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The coming of Jesus condemned sin in his own flesh. The Son's coming had to be flesh in order for it to work on our behalf. It wouldn't have worked if Jesus wasn't flesh. Uh, For the purpose that, verse 4, in order that, or so that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In us, we who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now remember last week we said that the presence of Christ in us by the Holy Spirit, that's key, the presence of Christ in us by the Holy Spirit is what makes a life that pleases God possible. That, that little snippet, that, that, that concept right there is huge for victory and freedom in Christ. The presence of Christ in us by the power of the Holy Spirit makes possible a life that pleases God. It's an awesome concept to say that, that you can please God. It's not the same as saying that you're sinless or perfect. But it's saying that God accepts your life as a fulfillment of the law you could not keep if you have the Holy Spirit inside you. The crucial piece there, if you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. So starting in verse 5, Paul tells what it looks like to live according to the Spirit by way of contrasting the mindset of the Spirit with the mindset of the flesh. He he tells us what it begins to look like by contrasting flesh and Spirit. Verse 5, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds. Important phrase, set their minds. Underline that. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind, there it is again, on the flesh is death. To think about, to desire the things of corrupt and fallen humanity is a formula, Paul says, for death. It's a formula for death, spiritually, physically, in whatever way you want to define it, frankly. Uh, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. In other words, if the Spirit's in you, you want to submit to God's law, even knowing you cannot meet it. So, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. (laughs) Despite how we're raised, what we think, the way we work and work and work to be good enough, it cannot do the job. It cannot do the job. No amount of stick no amount of, of, of pulling up yourself by the bootstraps, no amount of any effort to be good enough is good enough if your mind is set on the flesh. He encapsulates that idea of the contrast in verse 8 and says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It, it, it's not how it works. It won't happen. So Paul is talking in these verses, uh, especially in 5 to 8 here, about a disposition of the mind. Not just like the intellect, the mind itself as like this occasional mind exercise. I think there are a lot of believers, a lot of people who who sit in the pew each week, and, and, and it could be this intellectual exercise. He is saying this is a whole worldview, a whole mindset. He says it four times in three verses. It's, it's a fixed direction of the mind. 
It makes me think of Hebrews 12, where it talks about running the race of the Christian life by fixing, fixing your eyes on Jesus. It's where you're laser-focused and nothing else distracts you. That's what a mindset of the Spirit is like. It's a fixed disposition. Nothing else is going to distract you. Laser-focused on the things of the Spirit, he says. This disposition, this, this, this disposition of the will, this mindset, doesn't just happen because you've thought it. Or even because you believe something correctly. It happens as a repeated, concerted, intentional, joined with God's spirit kind of effort. Now this sounds sort of like an elementary principle. Like every Christian should know this, and I think we do. We, we, we know this. But our behavior shows otherwise. And here's what I mean. Let me just say it uh, sort of simply. You don't get your mind set on the Spirit by filling your life with things of the flesh. It sounds elementary. (laughs) But to say it clearly points out the silliness of our adherence to the flesh as a way to achieve goodness before God. You do not get your mind set on the Spirit by filling your life with things of the flesh. You don't get a mind set on the Spirit by watching lots of empty and useless television, or by reading trashy novels, or by spending lots of time with people whose minds are set on the flesh. People unawares in the body of Christ, are being discipled by flesh-feeding activities without even realizing it. So wait, Scott, are you saying that I can't watch TV and that I have to watch nothing but Kirk Cameron movies uh, and and read only the Bible and listen only to your sermons uh, and Christian radio? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. That would be legalism in a way which misses the point. But... Instead of asking, what can I get away with? (laughs) Instead of asking, what can I get away with and still be safe? Why are we not instead asking, how can I starve the flesh and feed the spirit? Why are we not asking, how can I feed the goodness of God that he's put in my heart? You cannot, as a believer, meaningfully and safely engage in activities like that. You cannot even meaningfully and and, and effectively engage the world with the gospel, for that matter, if you don't first have a mindset on the Spirit. If you don't first have a mindset on the things of the Spirit, you can't do it. If you go out into the world without a fixed mindset on the Spirit and on the things of God, all that empty stuff won't just go right by you. It, you'll catch it as it comes. And you can be easily taken up in those kinds of cares. For those whose minds are, are set on the Spirit, frankly, the, the stuff of the world just becomes kind of boring. Empty. It doesn't, doesn't help me. I don't really like it. It's boring to me. The problem is that loads and loads and loads of Sunday believers 
Those who are enslaved to churchianity, who say and even believe right things, think that they can have the best of both worlds. But Paul says they are deceived. Some of them blissfully unaware of their own ultimate destiny. They are saying with their lips, I love Jesus, but their hearts are still in love with themselves and the things of the flesh. Paul is saying here, there is no half and half. There are only two types of people in the world, he says, according to the Bible, flesh and spirit. Two mindsets, the only options. So consider yourself warned by verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. (laughs) But the setup (laughs) for verses 9 to following is what we've just covered. Those of you who are in the Spirit, he says, those of you, you, however, he says, starting in verse 9, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Starting here in verse 9, all the way through the rest of the chapter, the Apostle Paul tells us who we are. He tells us our identity. I told you to say that in your back pocket. We're back. Identity is where he begins to talk now in verses 9 and following. He tells us who we are if we have the Spirit in us. We are of the Spirit. We are children of God. He calls us heirs with Christ, victors, conquerors, those who have hope, those who can live this side of heaven without fear. He even says we are those who can suffer through the hardest things that life can throw at us and come out with the love of God intact in our hearts. That's a miracle. That's a miracle that demonstrates the Spirit of God is in you. That is who we are if we are born of the Spirit. So, so to get us there, Paul takes us back to this identity idea. We're going to see lots of cool stuff about what this means here. So let's jump in uh, at verse 9. He says this, You, however, in contrast to those just described in verse 8, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In, in Christ, in verses 1 and 2, if you'll notice that, in 1 and 2 it says, In Christ Jesus, twice there. In Christ Jesus has now become in the Spirit. So he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells, lives, abides, stays with and in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But, verse 10, if Christ is in you. Notice, he now also goes from from in Christ to having Christ in you. You are not just in Christ, but Christ is in you. We don't have time to go over all of these examples, but, uh, but it's important to note that Paul sort of uses a lot of these, uh, these phrases interchangeably. A whole bunch of ideas like having a mindset on the Spirit, being in the Spirit, living according to the Spirit, being in Christ, having Christ in you. These are all sort of interchangeable words here for Paul. In other words, to be in Christ is to have Christ in you, and to be in the Spirit is to have Christ in you. 
there's sort of this mishmash turnaround in changeability, interchangeability thing. It's, it's really cool to see it all in the text. I would encourage you this week to, to circle all those phrases in Christ, in the Spirit, of the Spirit, mindset on the Spirit, Christ in you, Spirit in you. It's, it's all over the text here. And this is where we get this idea of, of being identified with Christ. My identity is Christ. It's really cool stuff. We'll continue to show you some other things here. If Christ is in you, verse 10, continue there. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Because of Christ's righteousness for us that makes possible the fulfillment of the law by the spirit. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, verse 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Uh, Simply put, we are being raised by the empowering presence of the spirit and we will be raised by that same presence of Christ at the last day. It's now and it's then. We are being raised, our our mortal bodies are being empowered, animated, regenerated through the Spirit, and we will be raised by that same Spirit on the last day. Victory now, victory then. So in verse 12, Paul goes on to describe our identity as a child of God, as as children of God. This truth is the next blank in uh, in your study notes there. It says this, The most compelling reason to live by the Spirit... The most compelling reason to live by the Spirit is because we have been adopted into a new holy family. Uh, The the, the way that Paul verbalizes this identity idea is through adoption. The most compelling reason to to live by the Spirit is because we've been adopted into a new holy family. So pick up here at verse 12. It says this, So then, brothers, brothers is family language, So then, brothers, we are debtors. We owe a debt. We are obligated not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. At the end of verse 12 there. But if... uh, To live according to the flesh. Stop there, verse 12 here. uh, Where it says, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. There's this idea that Paul's going to introduce here in the next verse. uh, Of killing sin. That, that because we are debtors not to the flesh but to the spirit, we, we can participate with God's spirit in us to, to kill sin. We are under a sort of holy obligation, he says, to, to kill sin in our lives. And he's saying this because if that, that, that sense of, I'm not obliged to do that, if there's that sense in us of, I don't feel like I want to kill sin in my life, He points that out as a warning. He says that's a sign that you will die. It's a sign of the lack of the presence of the Spirit. Look at verse 13. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This idea of putting to death, of killing the deeds of the body by the Spirit, is what Tommy's going to touch on next week when he talks about what it looks like to make war on sin. So, So those who are killing sin by the Spirit, he says, are children of God, verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons 
of God. More family language there. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back uh, into fear. Way back at verse 2, it says that we are set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That means that we were once slaves to sin, Paul says. Galatians 4 says that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And when we were slaves to that sin, fear is what drove us. Fear from the power of sin to condemn us. And all fear comes from sin's power to condemn. If you're looking for a little practical application tidbit, it's that all fear comes from sin's power to condemn. All of it. But Paul wants to make clear here that we did not receive that kind of spirit. We did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. This is important for us to understand, for us to get. It's so important that in Galatians 2.4, Paul warns about false brothers who will slip in, who will slip in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. That's not the spirit we've received. Friends, don't let anyone, don't let anyone steal your freedom in Christ. Guard it closely. Because it's a comfort when others condemn. God's victorious declaration of you as adopted son or daughter, and the presence of Christ in you by the Spirit is a constant companion when others are quick to condemn. Instead, Paul says, verse 15, that's not the spirit you've received. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. The New International Version translates this phrase, spirit of adoption, as a spirit of sonship. The spirit of huios thesia. Huios is the name for son. Remember back in in verse 3, we talked about circling that word son. God sent his son, it says, his own huios, to accomplish for us this new status. And it's by that, that sending of Christ the Son for us that we are enabled, as it says in verse 15, to cry, Abba, Father. We can call him Father the same way Christ addresses him. Because of his identification with us, because we are now adopted into a new holy family. That's why Paul uses this kind of adoption language here. In Rome, where he's, he's writing to, uh, when you were adopted, all your previous debts were canceled. Legally, as an adopted son in Rome, they didn't adopt daughters. In Rome, when you were adopted as a son or a daughter, all your previous debts were legally canceled. And you were now given an entire new identity in terms that were totally, entirely related to your new family. So that's why why Paul uses this awesome picture to describe what it's like now without condemnation. The old life, he writes in 2 Corinthians, is gone. 
It doesn't, doesn't exist. The new has come. It's a new creation, he says. And, and with that identity of Christ with us and us in him, we are not just a son or a daughter with a new name, but we become an heir, he says, an heir of our new father's estate with all of the rights and the privileges there. In Galatians, he says, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if you're a son, then an heir through God. You did not receive, verse 15, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry now, Abba, Father. Verse 17 describes us as heirs of God, as fellow heirs with Christ. Some of you old-timers who have lived in Tennessee a long time may know the name Ben Hooper. Uh, there was one time when, uh, when Hooper was getting along in years, and he, he visited Gatlinburg, and he ran into a preacher there. And so this old man, the, the old man Ben Hooper, sat down at the table and stuck out his hand to the preacher and said, Hi, I'm Ben Hooper. He said, I was born not far from here, just across the mountains. He says, my mother wasn't married when I was born, so I had a hard time growing up. He says, when I started school, my classmates uh, had a name for me, and, and it wasn't a very nice name. I used to go off by myself at recess, he said, and, and during lunchtime because of the taunts of my playmates. And then he said, what was worse was going downtown on, on Saturday afternoon and feeling every eye burning a hole through you. They were all wondering who my real father was. He said this, When I was about 12 years old, a new preacher came to our church. I would always go in late and slip out early. But one day, the preacher said the benediction so fast I got caught, and I had to walk out with the rest of the crowd. <clears throat> he said, I could feel every eye in church on me. He said, just about the time I got to the door, I felt a big hand on my shoulder, and I looked up, and the preacher was looking right at me. He said, who are you, son? Whose boy are you? He says, I felt the old weight come back on me. It was like a big black cloud. Even, even the preacher was putting me down. And he said, but as he looked down at me, studying my face, he began to smile, a big smile of recognition. He said, wait a minute, I know who you are. I see the family resemblance. Son, you are a son of God. And with that, the preacher slapped the boy in the back and said, boy, you've got a great inheritance. Now go claim it. The old man sat at the table with the preacher there in Gatlinburg and said, that was the single most, the single most important sentence anyone ever said to me. And with that, he shook the hand of the preacher and moved on to another table to greet old friends. And suddenly the preacher remembered that there are two times in the history of Tennessee when the people have elected an illegitimate child to be their governor. And one was Ben Hooper. The fact of the matter is that we, 
We are illegitimate children who are adopted as sons and daughters who can call God Father. Every one of us is now adopted son and daughter of God. Illegitimate children adopted by him. And because of that truth, because of that identity with Christ, we can read these closing verses of Romans 8, of Romans 8, 31 to 39, with, with newfound heartfelt confidence, with the hope of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, knowing that we are God's child. What then shall we say to these things? Verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who will condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, Dad, you are Savior you are creator. You are redeemer. Give to us, Lord, by the presence of your Spirit in our lives such profound confirmation of the work you've done for us and in us that we would identify so closely with your Son, Jesus, that we would likewise be willing to lay down our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.